I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. What's up, San Diego? 504 on the clock, Tony Gwynn Jr., Chris Ella, Matt Scraby, all here helping you get through your evening drive. Uh... Got some good baseball news, at least in Chris and my Chris and I's mind. Uh, it 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 seems it's probably the best news we've had, it sports related wise, in quite some time. Uh, it seems that baseball is is formulating different plans, Chris, um, to to get the season going. And we heard yesterday that it wasn't a matter of if; it was a matter of when. There was a little more clarity provided today in terms of those plans. Yeah, I think so. A couple different places, too. Uh, Ken Rosenthal, who I think, you know, is, is very credible uh, with The Athletic. Bob Nightingale, who we know is very credible from USA Today. Both writing that uh, baseball is uh, hoping to get started uh, in mid to late June, uh, no later than July 4th. And, uh, you know, that would allow for a, about a 100-game season, depending on which article you're reading, 80 games, 100 games, 120 games, something like that. Bob Nightingale's article in USA Today went uh, as far as to say that uh, the baseball is thinking about combining the divisions, the American League and National League West. Uh, instead of two five-team divisions, you would have one 10-team division. And all the games for this regular season would be played within that division. So that would cut down on travel and uh, and all of that kind of stuff. And uh, and also the potential that uh, teams would be able to play games in their home ballpark. And uh, I think we put this together with the you know the the news from the governor's office, the governor of California today, Gavin Newsom, saying that he feels we are weeks away, not months, but weeks away from starting to you know open some up some smaller businesses and uh, beginning a, a four phase step process uh, where we could get things open back up and baseball or sports, I guess, without fans would be in phase number three of that phase four uh, sports with fans would be in the fourth and final phase. But anyway, you put it all together and it, it definitely leads to some positive, uh, you know, we, we keep seeing cautious optimism, but like I think today, the for the year. first time, the word optimism is is right up there with cautious instead of yeah. you know lagging behind. Yeah, no, there's there's no doubt about it. Uh, according to Ken Rosenthal of of his article in the Athletic, the most realistic time range for opening day somewhere between mid June and July fourth, in the view of most officials, uh, would allow for an eighty to a hundred game regular season with the schedule running through October and expanded playoffs and neutral sites might follow with the World Series ending in late November 
uh, or early December. And I think what you have is a couple different things going on, Chris. You have the the fact that the 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 um, whatever the the information that they're looking at is starting to look more favorable towards having sports as you see states start to to lift their stay at home but i think what also you have at play is is you know baseball remembers what it was like after 9-11 uh they were the first step towards getting some normalcy back in life and it was a huge factor in kind of healing the country i think you have that at play here not only with baseball with all the sports but especially baseball because uh they were the team they were the sport that was in play at the time uh, when 9-11 happened. Yeah, and I think the other thing that you touched on earlier that's important, Tony, is the fact that uh, and the, both of these stories, I mean, again, written by very credible reporters. I mean, these, are, these aren't just like quick Twitter reports coming from willy-nilly sources. I mean, these are, these are guys that are very well connected in the game. And it just seems to me that baseball would not be talking no. about these kinds of specific plans if baseball didn't feel like there was a reason to talk about them. And that leads me to believe, as you mentioned earlier, that, you know, baseball is in contact with our federal government in the highest places. And maybe they know some things that we haven't been privy to yet. And I, I kind of hope that's the case because it, it doesn't seem to me that they would be willing to take all of these steps uh, to lay out all these possibilities if they didn't think there was any chance for them to be able to take place. So that's that's what's yeah. really good about all of it, in my estimation. Now, the other story that um, has come out today in reference to Major League Baseball is Major League Baseball has, has granted uh, teams the autonomy to refund games, uh, that games that have been postponed by COVID-19. And that was kind of some murky water there for a little bit because Major League Baseball ultimately gets to side gets to decide what the other teams are going to do seems like uh rob manfred is going to step out the way and allow teams to make their own decisions at this point yeah i i think they kind of have to do that i mean if yeah. you have tickets for opening day i mean it's nice that the that the game is officially quote postponed and not canceled but i mean we're talking about uh over a month now uh, opening day would have been on march the 26th so this is right. uh, over a month now and I, I think the teams have to have the ability to start coming up with some sort of, some sort of, uh, you know, rules and, and regulations as far as what it'll be to refund some tickets. Uh, I mean, look, fans don't have all this disposable income just lying right. around, right. and you put this money into, you know, four tickets to. Uh, you know, four box seats to a Major League Baseball game, and you don't get to go to the game, and then the the club has your money. It it only makes sense that you ought to be able to have a chance to get it back. And I, I can understand why they they waited just to try to see exactly where everything was going to go. But the time has come for baseball to say, hey, look, we've got to go ahead and refund that money, or or at least give teams the ability to do so. Yeah, uh, an, industry, an industry official with direct knowledge of MLB's plan said Tuesday the league has determined enough time has passed that teams should be given the option to provide relief for fans who may 
who may themselves be financially stretched by the eco- economic devastation uh, throughout the that's been brought on by the the coronavirus. The official yeah. spoke to USA Today Sports on condition of an, uh, of anonymity uh, because the plan has not yet been announced. So uh, that seems like that is something. And as you said, it just seems like the the, the thing that they needed to be doing anyway. And uh, they've gotten to that point, which is good. Yeah. Now, if you have tickets to the Stratomatic season, you don't get any money back because we are <laughs> playing the Stratomatic games. <laughs> They're still being played. And tonight would have been game number 29 of the Major League Baseball season for your San Diego Padres. Padres with a record in Stratomatic Baseball, 13-15, and 15, hosting the St. Louis Cardinals in the second of a four-game series. Padres trying to snap a current three-game losing streak. No score in this game when we left off. Bottom of the fourth inning, though, Eric Hosmer able to change that in one quick swing. That's a breaking ball. Scalded in the right field. That's a base hit in the corner. Coming around to score. And a pop-up slide for Hosmer with a... So Eric Hosmer docking in the run. Padres take a 1-0 lead in the bottom of the fourth inning. However, in the top of the fifth inning, the Cardinals were able to even it up. An error by uh, Austin Hedges opened the door for the uh, Cardinals to uh, pick up the tying run on a fielder's choice ground ball by Tyler O'Neill. Then in the top of the sixth inning, Dexter Fowler, two-run single, came off of Zach Davies, knocked Davies out of the ball game, gave the Cardinals a 3-1 lead. Trey Wingenter out of the bullpen, got out of the uh, jam in the sixth inning without any further damage being done. And then in the bottom of the sixth inning, Fernando Tatis Jr. pinch hitting, getting the day off. But uh, in a pinch hitting role, coming through with an RBI double, score a run to make it 3-2. So that's where we stand right now through six innings. The Cardinals with Adam Wainwright on the mound, leading the Padres by a score of 3-2. to two. We'll see how this game finishes up in our happy hour a little bit later on. By the way, uh, this hour is brought to you by Smart Investing. Has the stock market got you up at night? Tune into the Smart Investing Show Saturday morning at 9 on 97.3 The Fan. Uh, Brent, excuse me, Brent Wiz, uh, Will, well, Wilsey, uh, with Wilsey Asset Management, has been managing money for more than 40 years. And if you want answers on how to invest, uh, make sure you tune in. Uh, we got to get to break. When we come back, we talked to our next guest last week, and he had some fantastic insight into this Bulls run, the last three championships they won. Uh, the last dance obviously is going on every weekend. We'll talk to Casey Johnson. Uh, he'll join us next to talk about the new episodes. Next, winning Chris San Diego's number one sports station, 97.3 to fan here. 519, the top Chris Ello, Tony Gwynn Jr., Gwynn and Chris. San Diego's number one sports talk station, 97.3 The Fan. Time to go out to the SDCCU Fan Hotline, number one show in America right now, at least as far as I know, is The Last Dance, this documentary about the Chicago Bulls, parts three and four over the weekend, and uh, still six episodes to go. Joining us from NBC Sports in Chicago, he covered the second three-peat for the Chicago Tribune, and that's uh, Casey Johnson. He was on with us last week, did a phenomenal job sharing some fun stories with us. And, uh, Casey, we appreciate you being on again. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, I guess after watching episodes three and four, the first thing i got to ask you, 
Casey, is uh, how many times did you go out and get a tattoo, you and Rodman together, spending some quality time? <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, covering that dude it was a trip. We, we had this thing at, in Chicago. We used to call it the Walk of Shame, and we did it obviously lightheartedly. But Dennis had a habit of um, showering pregame and then not showering postgame. Oh, boy. And oh. Yeah, hey now. And he um, he would not stand in front of his locker to answer the post-game media questions like athletes have been doing for years and years and decades. Um, he got the idea to have his post-game media availability like on the move, like a red carpet setting. So he would just bust out of the locker room and walk towards the loading dock, and we'd all be <laughs> – tracing along with him and cameras would be backpedaling and people would be tripping and swearing. It was quite the physical endeavor and it was uh, the walk of shame is what we called it. (laughs) (laughs) Casey, the one thing we talked about last year, uh, last week was how um, the, the, how they, the picture that they described of Jerry Krause. Now, the one thing that has come through, at least in my mind in the first four episodes is despite what people may felt, may have felt about him in terms of his job as a GM I mean he was pretty on top of it and quite ahead of his time it seems like in some in some shape and form yeah I mean he's in the uh Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame for a reason I mean he was damn good at what he did um yeah and I I like what you brought up there in terms of kind of ahead of his time Uh, he actually made some pretty pioneering hires they the Bulls were the first to use a strength and conditioning coach in the NBA Um, Al Vermeil, a brother of longtime NFL coach Dick Vermeil. Um, and if you look at the number uh, games played throughout the uh, dynasty, it's it's astonishing. And I'm not giving Al Vermeil, you know, all the credit for that. Obviously, the players are the ones who have to play through the nicks and pains and, and be out there every night and show up and answer the bell. But um, they really did have some pioneering um, uh, techniques and you know, Jerry, there's no getting around. Jerry inherited Michael Jordan, right? So he put the framer on the Mona Lisa, and he um, he really made a lot of great hires. Phil Jackson, Tex Winter, the legendary yeah. offensive assistant coach behind the triangle offense. Um, you know, and the only constants from the separate three V teams were Scotty and Michael, and obviously two incredible constants, but Jerry's responsible for one of them. He inherited the other, but he built two separate teams around those two guys, so you know, he uh, he was really, really good at what he did, which is why he's uh, in the Hall of Fame like he is. Casey Johnson from NBC Sports in Chicago worked for the uh, Chicago Tribune during the uh, the glory days of the Bulls, the second three-peat. And, uh, of course, Casey, that means you weren't working for the Chicago Tribune, or at least not covering the Bulls during the days when they had the run-ins with the bad boys and the Pistons. But that was quite a bit of what the episodes three and four were like. And, Jordan obviously still has a tremendous distaste for the Pistons. Did you get a chance to cover or meet any of those players from any of those teams or or at least hear some stories about what it was like for the for the first group of Bulls to get past that that Detroit team? Yeah, so I, I know I started the Tribune in 90 and I wasn't covering the Bulls then, but I, I, I'm a lifelong Chicagoan, so obviously I was aware of all those. And I – I call a lot of those guys pretty good friends. I like Bill Cartwright, a friend of mine. He was a Bulls head coach at one point. Um, a lot of guys on that team I know very well. And, and Isaiah Thomas is from here, so I've known Isaiah yeah. for a long time. Uh, he's actually – it's a pretty interesting dynamic because he's actually one of the most legendary high school basketball players in Chicago 
history, and that's that's not a that's not a small distinction. I mean, this is a no. really rich high school basketball area, and he is you know pretty much loathed here. I mean, he actually. I should say from a basketball standpoint, from a community standpoint, he does a lot. He does a lot of work with gang prevention and stuff and has given quite a bit back to this community. But from a basketball standpoint, you're absolutely right. That that I thought actually that episode was my favorite of the first four, particularly because you just see how raw and how real the hatred still is. I mean, that scene where they hand Jordan the device <laughs> you know, with, with Isaiah's explanation for why they walked off after the 91 Eastern Conference Finals sweep. And even before Michael gets the device, you can see him just like his hackles going up. He's like pure hatred, man. And it's like real. It's not fake at all. And to me, it just speaks to like a different era. And I'm like, I'm not like one of these guys like, oh, it was so much better than I, I think today's NBA is fantastic. And I, I, I love that players have the, the power to choose where they want to go. And they're, they're playing with their friends and forming these super teams. That's fantastic. However, Back then, that's not how it was. As you see, the, the Pistons had to break through the Celtics to get to their promised land, and the Bulls had to smash through the Pistons to get to their promised land. And those rivalries were no joke, man. So I thought that was a really, really great episode. To, to expand on that a little bit, Casey, we understand how Michael feels about it. Uh, you don't hear Scotty talk about it a whole lot. You mentioned you, you, you consider uh, Bill Cartwright a, a friend. How did everybody else feel about the Detroit Pistons walking off the court without shaking hands? I know uh, Isaiah Thomas mentioned that that's what the Celtics did to them, but it seems like nobody's buying that. No, they're not. There was actually a, a story in the Boston Globe just this week with a with an assistant coach kind of shooting that down, saying that that was a different scenario because that was the Celtics on the road and it was in the silver dome, not the palace of Auburn Hills and the fans were going to storm the court. So that was more of a mm. safety thing for the Celtics. And in fact, Kevin McHale, you know, grabbed Isaiah and was like, you know, go beat the Lakers because the Celtics hated the Lakers maybe more than the Pistons did. So, <laughs> right. so yeah, that, that, that one doesn't really fly here in Chicago. Uh, you know, I actually did a podcast with Bill this week and Bill was like, you know, I don't really care because we knew we kicked their ass. <laughs> you know, I mean, so it's just like, <laughs> like, the smack talking still, still legit. You know, Jordan is obviously upset about the handshake thing. Scotty, I've talked to over the years um, about it. He's upset about it. But it's really just more the rivalry. I mean, that was right. just a brutally physical series. And obviously the way the Pistons played defensively, um, it was more uh, the, the Bulls are more focused and still upset about that. Casey Johnson from Chicago talking about the the last dance and the Chicago Bulls. The one thing that they didn't touch on the other night, and maybe they'll get into it a little later in the in the series, Casey, is Scottie Pippen and his ability to somehow accept Dennis Rodman as a teammate. Because we did see uh, in the episode the, the, the infamous play where Rodman grabs Pippen and shoves him into the first row behind the backboard and could have seriously injured him and we know that Pippen and Rodman had an unbelievable uh, rivalry when the two two played against each other. Uh, how did Pippen somehow accept Rodman as his teammate only a few years after all of that happened? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it really, to me, speaks to the leadership structure and framework that's in place uh, from Jerry Krause down to Phil Jackson down to Michael Jordan. and. All those guys had to sign off on that move. The Bulls traded Will Purdue to the Spurs. 
in 95. And it was actually, I remember this pretty well here in Chicago. It, it was actually a pretty controversial trade because yeah, Rodman yeah. had started kind of going a little bit wayward with the Spurs and getting kicked out a lot of games and being AWOL for practices. And the Spurs, you know, they just, and I'm not, I'm not being critical of the Spurs here, but they were just like buttoned up and like, this is how you have to be. And this is, and they, you know, suspended him and fined him. And this is where I think Phil Jackson's greatness really comes out. He embraced uh, Dennis eccentricities and kind of his, you know, need to kind of blow off steam. I mean, obviously with the episode where they let him go to Vegas for 40 hours, like who does that, you know? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> yeah, so, exactly. And, and Dennis, you know what, you know what the Bulls figured out is if you let Dennis be Dennis, he'll give you everything he has. And, the Bulls do not win that second three-peat in my estimation if, if, if Dennis is not playing at the level that he did. He was so important to that team. He didn't need the ball to, to affect winning. And, um, you know, I just really think it's a master stroke of Phil's, you know, coaching style and leadership style. And then, you know, Michael is one of the few people that Dennis idolized. He really looked up to Michael Jordan. And, you know, Dennis is such an individual and a maverick that that, helped the dynamic as well because you had to fall in line uh, with Jordan to, to be on that team and, and contribute to winning. And, and Dennis certainly respected Michael. It's amazing. Great stuff, Casey. Uh, awesome. look, forward, look forward to the rest of the show. Thanks for joining us again. Hopefully we'll catch up with you when it's all over and maybe kind of put a bow on it, but uh, continue uh, enjoying things and uh, staying safe in Chicago there. And uh, we look forward to catching up with you again. It's been a couple of very fun interviews and uh, you've made it fun for us, even more fun to watch this, uh, yeah. this documentary. Thanks a lot for your Thank insight. Thank you, Casey. Thank you guys. I enjoyed it. Take care, man. You betcha. There he is. Uh, Casey Johnson from uh, NBC sports in Chicago who covered the uh, second three P to the Chicago bulls, the last dance, back in the mid or late 90s for the Chicago Tribune, sharing some fun stories with us. Chris, you, yeah. you know, the, the, the thing that I keep going back to, I mentioned Jerry Krause, but that's the other thing that stood out, and he mentioned it right before he got out there, was Phil Jackson. I mean, the ability to manage, he didn't just have, I mean, he had probably the biggest, some of the biggest egos in a, in a well, at least until he got to Los Angeles, in the <laughs> NBA at that point. And to be able to manage it, Dennis Rodman is a wild card. Like, I can't think of any coach now. Maybe Steve Kerr might let it go down, but to take a, a it turned into being a, a seventy-two hour hiatus to <laughs> to blow off some steam, as they kept calling it, to the point where they had to go tracking down. When they tracked him down, it wasn't even a big issue. Hey, man, you need to come back to practice, and he got back to practice, and they got back to winning games. It's just it's so unheard of because you just don't see a lot of uh, coaches that want to uh, allow that kind of freedom on a team. And a lot of times they can't. They don't they don't they can't manage that many, but Phil is he really speaks to his greatness as a, as a manager yeah. of people. And smart of Jerry Krause to realize that uh, yeah. Phil Jackson was probably the only coach who Dennis Rodman could have played for and gotten anything out of Dennis Rodman in a team concept because I remember when the Bulls traded for him and uh, as a it was Bulls controversial, fan, I remember that. And it certainly was controversial. But I remember thinking to myself, this is a stroke of genius. I, I just I knew how great of a player Rodman was. And I knew that if anybody could get the most out of Dennis Rodman as a player, it would be Phil Jackson. And that's he exactly did. what happened. And so it turned out to be a great move for the Chicago Bulls. And uh, 
but now we're seeing some of the reasons why Phil Jackson was able to get the most out of Rodman, and it's it's mind boggling. <laughs> it's you, absolutely you, mind boggling. You you were, but you hit on, you hit it on the head though, and I think that's why everybody's eyebrows went up to the ceiling when the 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 Bulls brought Rodman on. It was like, wait a minute, this dude. Dang near killed uh, Scottie Pippen, throwing him into the stands. Yeah, but it just goes to show you when guys are, are, are about winning, they'll they'll do anything in order to make that happen. And yeah. and in this case, Scottie had to, you know, probably swallow some things that he felt pretty strongly about in order to win ball games. And uh, you could just tell, even as they did the 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 video, separate videos with them, and there's a love there between those three guys that you're talking about, and Pippen, Jordan. Rodman, even though they're probably all completely different. How about the fact that one guy's from North Carolina? Okay, that's fine. Michael Jordan, we get that. The other two guys are from southeastern Oklahoma State and central Arkansas. Arkansas. (laughs) I just want everybody to understand that this whole notion that, you know what, I got to play college this at the highest level, and I got to play there, and I got to be on TV, and I got to get all of the publicity. No, you don't. All you have to do is be a great player wherever you are. They will find you. They found those two no guys. Doubt. No doubt. All right. We'll take a quick timeout. When we come back, we got a countdown coming up. Rodman may be a part of the countdown. We'll let you know when we return. I'm Chris Sello. That's Tony Gwynn Jr. It's Gwynn and Chris rolling towards 7 o'clock on San Diego's number one sports talk station. We are 97.3 The Fan. Last Dance has brought up a lot of different emotions, including in Chris and myself. We decided to have a countdown today. Top five NBA tough guys. We'll get to that in a second. Let's check traffic with Kelly Danik. Getting reports of a two-vehicle accident westbound side of the 8, right around Grossmont Center, not showing if any lanes are blocked. That's really our only trouble spot, though. I'm Kelly Danik with Glenn and Chris on San Diego's number one sports station, 97.3 The Fan. Now, before, before we get to the countdown. Um, Everybody's staying to... on Kelly's good side out there in the last yeah. half hour. That's good. Okay. Kelly, yeah, <laughs> she, she seemed a little bit uh, happier with speaking with the of tough guys. There. Watch out for Kelly. <laughs> Indeed, um, Matt Lafleur out uh, in Green Bay uh, yeah. might not be considered a tough guy after his uh, debut on Hard Knocks last year, uh, talking to John Gruden. But uh, <laughs> he he's whimpered making, up to John Gruden. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's making a tough guy move though, and, and and a lot of people believe at least one longtime Packer writer. Uh, believes that he's tiring. Matt LaFleur is tiring of, of Aaron Rodgers' act, quote-unquote. Oh, uh, yeah? He said, public uh, niceties aside, my sense is LaFleur, fresh from a terrific 13-3 and uh, season, simply had enough of Rodgers' act and wanted to change the narrative. With a first-round talent on the roster, the Packers would gain leverage with their imperial quarterback in his passive-aggressive style. If the Packers do indeed want to become a running team next season, they surely wouldn't want Rodgers rocking the boat and becoming even more difficult to coach. Now, I don't see how having another quarterback in the on the roster is making that any easier, Chris. I don't either. No. <laughs> and, and I don't and I don't see how Matt LaFleur trying to distance himself from Aaron Rodgers is right. gonna help Matt LaFleur in any way, shape, or form. I mean you, we already talked about this thirteen and three Packer team from last year, and I and I and I, I felt kind of like we were a little harsh on them. We were the other day. We were talking about them and saying, "Well, it was kind of a soft thirteen and three. And then I started thinking about that later on, and I was like, "You know, 
in the NFL, there really is no such thing as a soft 13-3. and three. I mean, these are all NFL teams, and they're right. all playing, you know, pretty good football. And the Packers did get their wins, and they, you know, they deserve the record that they had. But that said, they're not going to – they're not going to go thirteen and three again if Aaron Rodgers isn't playing great quarterback. They're just not. I, I just don't see it being possible. So I, I really think that uh, it's Matt Lafleur's best interest to get along with Aaron Rodgers as well as he can and try to you know build a team as best as he can around him. Um, but you know, I I, I I really don't understand the. Uh, the drafting of Jordan Love, um, but but then again, I don't think Jordan Love's going to be all that great to begin with. So, what can I say? Uh, yeah, we'll just see I, how it all turns out. I don't think you're alone in not understanding the Love pick. It seems like the entire NFL, other than Green Bay, didn't understand the pick. And I would say, listen, it's one thing to 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 draft an Aaron Rodgers behind a Brett Favre because that 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 turned out that's Aaron Rodgers, and Aaron Rodgers was highly uh, thought of when he came out in the draft. I don't know if that can, same can be said for Love. I think the potential is high, but there's nothing in the 2019 season that said he was going to be anything like Aaron Rodgers. And to be honest, I don't know if there was anything in his successful 2018 season that said that. So yeah, and I don't. And I and if whatever the reports are true, I mean, we're we're taking it all. We have to take it all a little bit with a grain of salt. I mean, this is something that a you know reporter in Green Bay is is, is his writing sense. about. Yeah, and, it's his and sense he, and saying yeah, his sense. But uh, look, drafting Jordan Love to me doesn't give the Packers any kind of upper hand in their dealings with Aaron no, Rodgers at no, all. No, None at all. Not at all. I mean, no. I, I, what are they – you mean they're going to walk into Aaron Rodgers and go, hey, we're going to become a running football team. We're not going to throw the ball more than 15 times a game. And if you don't like it, we're going to put Jordan Love in. <laughs> right. What are you going to do, say you, that? Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not going to happen. No. So, I, I, you know, I don't think Aaron Rodgers <laughs> is going to be too concerned about anything that the Packers did – that's why I think it's, it was a bit of an overreaction, the whole Jordan Love thing, people saying they didn't like the pick because it's going to upset Aaron Rodgers. It may or may not upset Aaron Rodgers. I don't really think it matters so much because Aaron Rodgers is still going to be able to do whatever he wants to do. He's still the kingpin in Green Bay. But I just think it's a bad pick because I just don't think that Jordan Love's that good of a quarterback. I mean, yeah. I, I'm sorry, but there was, you know, what, 120-some-odd Division One college football teams last year. They all had a starting quarterback. And none of them threw more interceptions than Jordan Love did. So, yeah. you know, it's just hard for me to, to equate that with a first-round talent. And it's not like he threw those interceptions in the SEC. He threw those interceptions right. to right. Luke Barku at San Diego State and the rest of the guys right. in the Mountain West right. Conference. So I, I just uh, – that that's why I thought it was kind of a strange draft pick, just because I don't think Jordan Love is going to be that good. Now, I might have to eat my words when it's all said and done and uh, – it wouldn't be the first time. I've tasted them many times in the past, and this would not this would not be anything new. But I, I don't think that you take Jordan Love just so you can get the upper hand on Aaron Rodgers. That doesn't make any sense to me no. at all. No, not at all. Uh, let's get to the real tough guys in our countdown. Yeah. Quinn and Chris like to rank things, not college rankings, not athlete rankings. So what's your point? But their own rankings. And these rankings can be very serious. Top five ways that we like potatoes. Top five pizzas. Top five ways to beat the heat. 
I like where this is going. Giggity, giggity, giggity. The countdown starts now on 97.3 The Fan. All right, our countdown top topic five. today. Go, sorry, yeah. Tony. Uh, top five Top five today is um, a list of the toughest, or I should say the tough guys of the NBA all time. Not right now. Of course, there can be some from right now. I don't think there's going to be any on this list, though. I'm just going out on the limb and saying. Kevin Durant? Tough guys. It's not going to be on my list. It's not going to be on my list. <laughs> oh, why not? Um... <laughs> They don't play that kind of basketball anymore. Good answer. Good answer. There's only, <laughs> honestly, there's only one guy in the entire league that I could even think of right now that could even be in consideration for this list, and that would Draymond. be Draymond Green. That's the same name I came across. I was going to mention him one. to say he's he's an honorable mention on my list. He's, yeah, he's not he quite in there. They don't allow the type of things that in today's NBA that they allowed them. So I don't even know if Draymond would want Dray, Draymond would want to do something like that. So no. uh, my top of my list, as much as I cannot stand this guy, he has to be number five at the very least. We've been talking about him a little bit because he seems still seems quite bitter uh, that his team got old, and that's the Lambeer. Uh, as Chris said yesterday, it wasn't like he that was his sole purpose. This dude was a, a quality. NBA big, an all-star a couple times. Uh, this guy could play a little bit, but he was mainly known for that being the biggest bad boy on the bad boys, and uh, he let it be known, whether it was Larry Bird, Charles Barkley, Robert Parrish, he was involved in hacking all of them. He sits at uh, number five on my list. He hacked them all. There's no question about it, but I refuse to put Bill Lane Beer on my list. <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you I would. Did. I did. I certainly thought about him, but as I looked at that Detroit Pistons team, and you got to talk about the meanest, toughest son of a gun, like straight up, it's oh, not yeah, Bill Lambeer. Bill Lambeer is no, the one not. that people think about because he took all the cheap shots. But the biggest, toughest, strongest, meanest dude by far, I think, was Rick Mahorn. Yes. And if yes. anybody remembers Rick Mahorn, first of all, just his name alone send a shudder down your spine <laughs> Mahorn, for a second. Right. But I was in the <laughs> I was in the locker room one time when the Pistons played the Lakers, and Rick Mahorn came running in there for something. And I mean, I got out of the way in a hurry. He was just a big, strong, muscle-bound guy. And, I mean, you heard Rodman and, and Lane Beer talking about him. He didn't get interviewed in the last dance. But I'm telling you, Rick Mahorn, was, he was the truth when it came to being the toughest guy in the bad boys, I think. And, you know, that that's just my recollection of it all. Lane Beer got all of the ink because he was a better player and because he did sillier tactics. Mahorn just, I mean, he just threw an elbow and just knocked you down. I mean, it just, he played, played power forward like he was a, an offensive tackle. I mean, that's the way Mahorn played. I don't think Mahorn ever made a basket in the NBA. You heard Mahorn's name mentioned in the last dance. John Sally was talking about how Mahorn taught him about yeah. not getting cheap fouls. If you're going to that's get right. one, get that's one. right. If you're going to get a foul, get a make cheapie. sure it counts. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's why for number four. Number four. Yeah, Rick Mahorn sits. Oh, you put Mahorn in your list too. Okay. Absolutely. If if you if you go back and watch that Bad Boys um, thirty for thirty that they did on on that team. Yeah. Rick Mahorn couldn't stand Bill Lambeer, but they went out and got him anyway because from Philadelphia, I believe they brought him over, and he was the the tough guy that kind of implemented all of that. 
Yeah. I, they interviewed him, and he was asking him about when he got traded. And the first thing he said was, I don't want to play with Bill Lambeer. But they, they ended up coexisting, and he brought all of that bad boy, the realness of it, to that team in Detroit. Yeah. The only thing I wish is that he would have played against Lambeer a little bit more just so he could have elbowed him a few more times. I do, Just for the rest of us. Uh, Number four on my list is Charles Oakley. Uh, Not to be confused with Charles Barkley. I did think about Barkley from my list, and I don't know. He may end up on yours, Tony. Barkley, to me, was just a little bit too good of a skilled player to make the all-time tough guy list. That's why it's not that he wasn't tough because Barkley was tough. But I, I didn't put him on my list because he was just too skilled. Charles Oakley, though, was the perfect candidate for this list. He was Michael Jordan's first security guard uh, there in Chicago when the Bulls first drafted him. Then he was everybody on the New York Knicks security guard for about 10 years playing against Jordan and everybody else. <laughs> was, and then when he was like 60 years old, it still took like 19 guys to hold him back at Madison Square Garden when he wanted to go after the owner when he got kicked, ejected from the arena a couple of years ago. It still took about 10 guys to hold him down. So that gives you an idea how strong Charles Oakley was. Number three. Yep. Charles Oakley. Oh, he really? sits on my. The, the crazy thing is you're going to find either, in my list, you're going to find mostly Pistons and Knicks on my list. Mostly. Mostly. Yeah. Charles Oakley has to be on that list. As you mentioned, we saw how he treated Scottie Pippen when he was a rookie in the first couple of episodes of The Last Dance. He moved on to, to the Knicks. And after playing with Michael for, I think it was five, six years before he moved on. I believe it was five uh, years with Michael, yeah. Five years with Michael, he moved on to Knicks and acted like he had no recollection of a of of a friendship with Michael Jordan because no. he was doing some of the beating too when uh, he came into that lane. Yeah, you got to put a guy on your list who who, who challenges seventeen security guards at Madison Square Garden. <laughs> Literally seventeen. <laughs> I mean, they couldn't slow him down, man. He was trying to charge ahead. James Dolan would have been in a heap of trouble. All right, uh, what what number are we on? Three. Three. Okay, number three for me is Maurice Lucas. I'm going Ooh, back good, a little bit before the Bad Boys uh, days. Uh, Maurice Lucas was the original enforcer, and I can say he was the original enforcer because Sports Illustrated put him on the cover in 1977 when I was in high school, and I remember seeing a cover photo of Maurice Lucas of the Portland Trailblazers, and it simply said, The Enforcer. And that's what he was. And he was—he played with Bill Walton, and he played with those Portland championship teams, and he played with some other great teams. And Maurice Lucas was an all-pro forward, too, good enough to play the game. But to me, he was the first guy that kind of went out there and played a little tackle football while he was playing basketball. And so yeah. I, I, I wanted to recognize Maurice Lucas on my list at number three. Number two. Number two, this guy doesn't get enough recognition for being one of the toughest guys in the NBA through the late 80s, early 90s. That's the X-Man Xavier McDaniels. Oh, yeah. He was also on that Nick team. He was also got challenging the likes of Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. Wasn't as, as, as bulky as maybe Oakley was, but this dude was a lean, cut-up machine. He was definitely one of the bad, uh, one of the toughest guys in the league. Even when he moved on to the Supersonics later on, he was still that guy. 
He always had a look of distaste on his face. <laughs> he did. He looked like he had just eaten an onion or something. 100%. Not a happy-looking guy. All right, number two for me is a little bit of a homer pick, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I went down as many lists as I could find today of NBA Tough Guys, and I didn't see this guy's name anywhere. But my all-time favorite NBA Tough Guy is this guy. And, Tony, I'm sure that you love this guy also. And that is Kurt Rambis. Kurt Rambis was the ultimate tough guy for the Los Angeles Lakers. I mean, he played on the Showtime team, yet he started. And he didn't take any guff from anybody. Just ask Kevin McHale. Ask every one of the bad boys that he took on personally by himself. And ask Magic Johnson, who he thought was one of the most important players on those Showtime Laker yep. teams, and he will always tell you Kurt Rambis was a key ingredient. But Rambis, he did it as well as anybody. He could put in, you know, six, eight points a game. He always gets you 10, 12 rebounds. But just toughness. And I loved a guy like Rambis because he did everything on a basketball floor and affected the game without having to have the ball in his hands. And I, and I always appreciated that about Kurt Rambis, one of my favorite players of all time. And not only that, he had the horn rim glasses to go along with it. <laughs> I mean, he had the Clark Kent glasses. I mean, Rambis was a, was a piece of work out there, and I, and I loved him for it. One. Number one on my list has got to be Kevin Garnett. Uh, really? This, this guy was the, the lightest guy on the court most nights. But you could not tell if you were watching him play the game. He intimidated pretty much everybody he came across uh, across of. And listen, when you when you when when you hear guys tell stories around the league, this dude was truly feared. And in today's age, I think that's saying something because a lot of these guys don't aren't really scared of much of anything because of the way the rules are. And I know Kevin hasn't been playing for at least about five six years at this point, but yeah, he's he got the easily. Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's easily uh, one of the toughest dudes I can I've ever seen on the court play. And when you couple that with the skill he actually had to go along with that toughness, you very rarely have both guys who are the the enforcer and have the skill. Kevin Garnett was that guy. Hi, my number one guy is Kurt Rambis, magnified, and that's Dennis Rodman. I, yeah. I just think. He may not be the single toughest guy. I mean, if they had a street fight, Rick Mahorn probably could win. Yeah. But nobody ever played the game of basketball without the ball better than Dennis Rodman. I agree. Ever. Totally agree. In the history of the game. And that's defense, that's rebounding, that's passing, that's setting picks, that's getting to every loose ball. Uh, to me, he's the epitome of the tough guy. And I know that we're focused on him a lot right now because of the last dance, but he'd be at the top of this list whenever we did it for me. Yeah, yeah, no, he he's one of those guys that at the end of the day, he did all of the dirty work that, and he did it at such a high level. We got to get out of here. Six o'clock, right around the corner. Gwen and Chris, ninety-seven-three, the fan. We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend four point four hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? 
Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.